0: Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Jock Sorong. Jock is the author of five novels, including The Rules of Backyard Cricket and the Colin Roderick Award winning On the Java Ridge. Jock and I last spoke about preservation. It's available in the Great Conversations podcast. It was his historical exploration of the wreck of the Sydney Cove in 1797. Today, Jock joins me to discuss his latest novel, The Burning Island. My name is Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm recording in the mountains outside of Sydney on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners and pay my respects to their ongoing connections to the land. The final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing and literary culture. I want to share Australian books with the world. You can help me. Just give us a rating, leave us a comment. It puts the conversation in front of more eyes in the podcast world. Today on the show, in 1830 Sydney, Eliza Grayling is something of an oddity. She's too tall, too old, too sure of herself without a man to marry. She teaches unappreciative children and wonders what the world might have in store for a woman such as her. When the merchant Shrinivas appears in search of her father, Eliza is thrown into a world of old enmities and new perils. Guiding her now blind father aboard the ship Moonbird with its ragtag crew of misfits, Eliza embarks on a journey to discover and perhaps settle scores with the mysterious figure of Mr. Fig. Join me as we discover Joxerong's The Burning Island. Uh-huh. My name is Andrew Popel, and I've got such a great book to share with you right now, and an absolutely fantastic author on the line. Jock Sarong is the author of five novels, including The Rules of Backyard Cricket and the Colin Roderick Award winning On the Java Ridge. It's been almost two years since Jock and I spoke about preservation, his historical exploration of the wreck of the Sydney Cove in 1797. Jock's returning to that milieu with his new book and hitting the water again for his latest novel, The Burning Island. Jock, welcome back. Thank you for joining me on the show.
1: Hey, Andrew. I can't believe it's been two years. That's a shock.
0: I, um, I, needed, I needed some ideas from my notes, so I pulled up the notes and, yeah, it was, it was November 2018. Yeah, different world. I know. Well, I mean, it, 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 in a way, it almost feels closer than this year. Two years ago feels closer than March does in, in a few ways.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It feels like that out here too. But let's
0: let's go back in time. Let's go to some familiar waters. In the township of Sydney, Eliza Grayling, she's something of an oddity. She's too tall, too old, too sure of herself without a man marriage. She teaches unappreciative children and wonders what the world might have in store for a woman such as her. Now, when the merchant Shrinivas appears in search of her father, Eliza is thrown into a world of old enmities and new perils. She has to guide her now blind father aboard the ship Moonbird with its ragtag crew of misfits. Eliza embarks on a journey to discover and perhaps settle score with the mysterious figure of Mr. Fig. I really hope I did justice to the drama and to the setup of the Burning Island because there is just so much scope and it's 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 such a large book and so dramatic. I I was hooked from the beginning.
1: Uh, I think you did, Andrew. It's funny I um, I struggle to encapsulate the novel in just a few words. There's a lot of elements spinning off in different directions and. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what you've said there really captures it. Um, it it's, you know, in part, it's just an adventure at sea, but it's also um, something of a hymn to Bass Strait and to those islands. And um, it, it's a study of those times. 1830 is a really interesting little hinge in Australian history because um, the missionary George Augustus Robinson was trying to clear Aboriginal people out of Tasmania and indeed out of the, the islands to put them in a settlement and there was a community of sealers down there who were pretty much hiding from him. Um, There was a lot going on in historical terms. So it it kind of operates at a few different levels.
0: And I guess perspective is so important to what you're saying there because those communities, those sealers, there is our perspective, are set up in the novel that they are perhaps Lawless, perhaps in some way even villains of the piece, but we really have to consider, you know, who are we taking our information from?
1: That's exactly right. Um, the Robinson was an obsessive diarist, and he wrote tens of thousands of words about his efforts to round up the Tasmanian Aborigines. And a lot of what we have as history about the sealers in those islands came from Robinson's diaries. And Robinson had an agenda. You know, He was a, a very, very capable propagandist. So the history as we know it really is pretty contentious and you can find multiple versions of it, whether the sealers were um, murderers and rapists who abducted Aboriginal women or whether there were Aboriginal women who went to those islands um, voluntarily, and, and the reasons why they might have done that. Um, none of these things are clearly settled, and and yet we don't talk about them very much.
0: Isn't it interesting to look back at the historical record to see to see times when there is perhaps a paucity of uh, primary sources but that we can you know get some certainty from, and we think we'd like to think we've moved on from that, and yet here we are in an age where information is everywhere everyone is their own journalist and own chronicler and and yet we still have those same issues of trying to understand perspective and trying to understand those agendas that people bring to bear
1: yeah and and we have a, a long literary tradition in Australia of um, historical fiction and yet I think we're still opening up brand new ground about a lot of um, our history I, I just finished reading Mirandi grewau's Stone Sky Gold Mountain, and mm. that's a very, very intimate perspective on the lives of Chinese people on the gold fields in the 1860s, and it, it's all sorts of cultural stuff that I'd never thought about. I was certainly never taught at school, um, and I think that's happening in Australian literature all over the place at the moment, which, which is a really positive development.
0: I actually had cause to think about this. Mirandy's novel is so fantastic. I got to speak to her earlier this year, but I had cause to think about this, uh, just last night. And I, I feel like I'm noticing two distinct themes happening in the books that I'm reading this year. And maybe it's something happening in Australian literature, but with Stone Sky Gold Mountain and then also Kate Grenville's A Room Made of Leaves and, and perhaps The Burning Island, um, as we're about to discover, there, there is this, this looking back, this consideration of perspective and, and what's happening? I mean, another book that um, that I don't have—I don't have the um, the title at hand. I might just have to edit that out. But we're also exploring perspectives from First Nations writers about their, what they are seeing um, of that history being retold.
1: Yes, and Claire Coleman is a classic example with Perumilius, Um yeah. The way that Pascoe did nonfiction um, with Dark Emu. Um, the White Girl, the Tony Birch novel, um, lots of recent examples. And and we all know that the history that we've been fed as students um, was written by the white guys who won the major battles. Mm. And um, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily truth or that it's settled. And And researching these novels, researching Burning Island, I kept coming across uncertainties that either I had to resolve in my own mind or I've just had to thread them into the novel as controversies and, and leave it to the reader to think about the currents that were driving these things.
0: Can I ask about that research? Because you, you mentioned something before that I loved. I think you, you referred to it as a sort of a love letter almost to the strait. And there is such a love and respect in your depictions of the islands of the, the ferner group uh, as the moonbird sails its waters. Did you do hands-on research? Like, How did you go about rendering the terrain so vividly?
1: Well, the difference between this book and Preservation, the, the story follows on from Preservation, uh, albeit 33 years later. The difference for me as a writer was that in doing Preservation, I was talking mostly about the south coast of New South Wales, which is um, it's a coastline that I love, but I really don't know it well and I don't have a natural affinity for it. So in that case, I was going up there and doing weekend trips and walking around and trying to get an understanding of how it operated as a natural world. Um, With the Furno Islands, I have spent a lot of my adult life in those islands and um, I'm nowhere near as intimately acquainted as the locals are, obviously, but um, I do have a strong affinity for the way that the rocks are, the way that the water is, um, the way that the weather operates. There's this really interesting... Duality, whereby an easterly comes from the Tasman and it's kind of damp, warm air, like uh, people in Sydney might be familiar with. Mm. And then a westerly comes out of the Southern Ocean and it's dry, cold air. And both of those winds carry different bugs. Um, And because they carry different bugs, the birds behave differently and um, the foliage makes different noises. So there is this constant um, natural process of transactions going on, you know, between the air and the animals and the water. And um, really, I, I could write hundreds and hundreds of pages just obsessing about those processes. But thankfully, I've got an editor. <laughs>
0: we are actually, we're so fortunate to to live in this age where, as we read, I was so transfixed by your descriptions just of the islands as the boat approached them, that I could pull out a phone and I could bring up photos. Um, yes. Uh, and it was just it was just wonderful to to have your vivid description and then to put a picture to it and then to go back into the adventure as, as perhaps the ship landed on the island or perhaps they
1: they took harbour nearby. Yeah, well, you know, to compare the Ferno Islands on the eastern side of Bass Strait with King Island on the western side, um, King is made of different rock and it, it is in parts it's quite dark. Uh, and foreboding whereas the Ferno Islands are made of very pale silvery granite and they're all these gorgeous round boulders and the granite makes very very white quartz sand so everything in sunlight everything kind of gleams and um, I was trying to give a sense of that that they are both a, a dangerous maritime environment but they're also a very very tranquil place on the right day
0: Fantastic! Yeah, I'm get, I'm going to have to get down there. Um,
1: you mentioned <laughs> you mentioned
0: uh, before, of course, the Burning Island takes as its departure point the characters from Preservation. However, the journey of the Moonbird is is a fiction. Was it more freeing to work within the history this way, with a complete sort of fictional journey, or and and how are you then still bound to the times and the places that you depict?
1: Um, It it is freeing at times, but um, the advantage of writing fairly directly from history is that you've got a template laid out for you. In other words, I knew how many people needed to survive this part and that part and where they would be at a given point in the journey and what they were carrying. All those things were laid down for me. Um, When you're making the story up, you are both at liberty, but you're also a, a little at sea because you're trying to ensure that the story has an internal cohesion, that it's it's got enough momentum, that it um, does the things it needs to do to keep the reader on the page. Um, I think uh, with Burning Island, I wanted to address some truths. I wanted to talk about the sealers and their wives. I wanted to talk about the warrior Taranarra. Um, and I wanted to talk about what Robinson was doing to the place and to the people at that time. So those are historical realities that I wanted to make sure were in there. But I also wanted to follow an imaginative path that's more like Heart of Darkness. It's it's a journey into the devil's lair, and the key to a Heart of Darkness approach is that um, the people on the quest aren't going to find what they're looking for. They're going to find something else entirely. So um, that was the guiding principle, I think, um, in, in putting the plot together.
0: Mm. We spend so much of the journey on the moon bird. And in my opening, I described uh, the, the moon bird, uh, its crew... Um it's, tra- it's passengers as a ragtag band of misfits. And that's a bit of a cliche. That that's usually sort of evokes the trope, the trope sorry, of, of, you know, they're not the best, but they're the best for the job. Um, I, I honestly, I found myself drawing parallels with, you know, cinematic images of things like Star Wars, Rogue One or, or the Guardians of the Galaxy. Can you talk to me about assembling this such a disparate group?
1: Yeah, I, I like it as a description that they're a ragtag crew. I, um, when I started out, I suppose, I knew I wanted um, Eliza and her father to be on the boat. I knew I needed a skipper because it wasn't going to be either of them. Um, and then I thought, okay, I need crew, um, and then I need a mysterious outsider. So I, I had these, I suppose, fundamental elements that needed I needed mechanically for the boat to work. But it's only a fair way into the writing process that you start to see that combination of characters as a crew and as a community. Um, And once I've settled into that as an idea, it's really very helpful to the writing because they're stuck within the confines of a small boat and they're all bouncing off each other all the time. So in any given scene, I can think about, okay, who's talking? What are they doing? And where's everyone else? And once you think about, okay, where's everyone else? Then little um, little sparks of plot start to, to strike off that. Um, somebody else might be drinking or they might be in the rigging or they might be up to no good or they might be asleep. Um, and before long, you can really get momentum out of the interactions between those characters. Once you're comfortable with who they are and what's driving them, then um, the transactional stuff starts to happen. And, and that makes the telling of the story uh, easier and also hopefully a bit richer.
0: Yeah, the wonder of the characters I found is so much in very passive interactions, perhaps not something that directly drives the story. I mean, uh, the visual of... Um, and something I'm going to leave as, as maybe a little bit of a, a surprise for people to discover, but the visual of the captain each day or the interaction of the Connolly brothers... But look, for me, Eliza, Eliza is the true wonder of the novel. She is precisely the sort of person you would want to know. But because this is not now, but the 19th century, she occupies this sort of liminal zone. She's an outsider, but she also has the perspective and intelligence to observe and to serve uh, as our um, sort of narratorial perspective. There is a sense, though, in which all the characters are battling with a kind of Personal imprisonment or an outsider status. Grayling, Joshua Grayling, has his fall from grace. Um, Argyle has this inability to express his true self. The Connolly brothers—they're thrown together against their troubled youths and uh, sort of have come together for protection and, and friendship. This is an era when difference was toxic, and you—you you really couldn't fall too far outside of societal norms. Did it give you? Scope within the boat to explore these personalities, perhaps as we might understand them today?
1: Yes, and and you have to always be on guard if you're writing historical fiction, not to impose current values on these people. Mm -hmm. Um, For instance, Eliza's horror and despair at being a spinster at 32 years of age um, sounds comically underdone as a modern concept, But in in that time and place, it would have been a very serious life issue. Um, And when she's on the boat and on the journey, my way of thinking of this is that Eliza is looking for allies. She's got an enormous task on her hands, looking after her father on that boat. And she's looking among the other people on the boat for solidarity and for guidance at times. She's a very capable woman, but equally um, she has a handful um, getting through this. And, and so she turns to each of them, you know, one by one to be her allies. And they've all got their own difficulties to, to grapple with. And that's why when the boat finally reaches the islands and um, events start to spiral on the islands, um, they band together in various ways um, because they, they've been through this journey together already. I think of the islands as a completely separate part of the story to what went on on the boat on the way down there.
0: Eliza, at one point, she describes the islands they're sailing towards as an antipode to our antipode, a place where bad men went to hide. To what extent did you want to explore the makeup of of these settler colonials who had then gone on to occupy the extremes of that
1: world at the time? Yeah, well, um, I think it's interesting that, we use the colloquial expression, the antipodes, to describe ourselves, or Europeans might use it to describe Australia. But the idea of an antipode as a concept um, is really a rich one, and I think the islands are the the far-flung um, inverse, the negative image of the continent itself. And I, I came across this odd thing when I was researching that there was a belief around this time in history that each major landform on the planet had an exact reverse on the opposite side of the planet. Mm. And um, Dr. Gideon talks about this at one stage um, in respect of, I think, Redondo Island, that it was named because on the the precise point on the globe that is its opposite, there is exactly the same landform. And that was what got me going on the idea of an antipode to an antipode. Um, and, and a similar concept is um, Dr. Gideon talking about the moon being um, having been projected or released from the Pacific Ocean, and that the Pacific Ocean is the moon's void on Earth, um, and that that is the linguistic reason why shearwaters are called moonbirds because they sail a mig- they sorry they fly a migratory path around the rim of the Pacific. Um, so, all of these, you know, old and deep geographical ideas that were very prevalent in the 19th century, they have lovely um, philosophical and psychological undertones that you can really riff on in literature. And um, there's an endless number of them. I, I think I, I probably plucked a couple that really appealed to me, but um, it's a fascinating field.
0: What was it like exploring the science of? The world that you were creating, but then also keeping it within the science of the time, because of course you've you've talked about the doctor there, and he is he is very much involved in investigation, but of course you're bound you're bound by the
1: 1830s and the current knowledge. Yes, um, I've always been very interested in a wave of naturalists who were responsible for naming a lot of um, marine species. There was Linnaeus there was obviously Humboldt, uh, there was Cuvier And um, these people were not hard scientists, as we might think of the notion, but they were swashbuckling adventurers, they were speculators. Um, they were very often on the make, and they were promoting their own brand by naming things. And I wanted to give Dr. Gideon a bit of an element of that, that, um, yes, he has an intellectual curiosity about the creatures Things like paper nautiluses and um, deep sea fish. But equally, um, he wants it to be about him. He wants to be the person who dissected it, who found the secrets of some strange invertebrate. So, um, where medicine was moving more into a, a hard nosed scientific realm, um, natural sciences like biology uh, of this kind were still very much the, the um, domain of the Adventurers, um, yeah. So I, I, I wanted Doctor Gideon to really reflect that. I suppose
0: you also play really nicely with um, the, the. I guess the overlap. What we might think of as the overlap between. Science and philosophy, and I guess a certain religiosity at the time. And there's a there's a trope that you use. I'm gonna I'm just gonna tread really carefully around around spoilers here, but where Dr. Gideon is very interested in the Fibonacci sequence, uh, but particularly as a sort of descending sequence, um, a looping spiral that will move ever onwards into an infinite point. That's that's an absolutely fascinating way to structure, I guess, an idea, a philosophy, but also to build some part of narrative around, isn't it?
1: Yes, and often they're things that um, start as idle curiosities. That they're little things that you trip over researching something else that's much more practical. And they they become the stone in your shoe, and the more you think about them, the more you realise that they have inner meanings. And the, the inverse... Um, of the Fibonacci sequence, the idea of a closing spiral. I think it's actually Eliza Grayling who suddenly twigs and it really disconcerts her that if the shape of the voyage that the moon bird is making from Sydney down into Bass Strait and then ever tighter into the islands is actually forming a spiral, then the spiral is going to close in on itself and she, she sort of desperately asks him at one point, Well, how are we going to get home? Mm. Um and I love that as an idea. Um, she she sort of tries to make a joke of it and talks about it forming a bass clef, and and then that leads her into bass Strait. Um But Dr Gideon has, uh, if you remember Willy Wonka, in I think it's in the film and not in the book of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, he does a rather terrifying riff on um, the rowers on the Chocolate River and the fact that they don't know where they're going and they just keep on rowing. Mm. Uh, We're and of course Dr. talking Gideon, about Gene Wilder. The Gene Wilder. The, yes. the, the Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> oh, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> um, Dr. Gideon, I think, has a similar idea of the voyage into Bass Strait that um, there's an element of chaos and unpredictability about what they're doing, even though they've drawn themselves a line on the map where they want to go. It's this closing spiral that um, that completely terrifies Eliza.
0: And for anyone who hasn't seen it, I mean that's that's definitely worth just getting on YouTube and looking up that sequence from the original film because it has no place in a children's film. It is t- it's terrifying that sequence, and Gene Wilder plays yeah. it to terrifying effect as it just goes on and on, and the monotone in his voice. It really, it really would not be out of place. I think per- perhaps in in moments in the Burning Island because look, there is there is something epic in the setup of the burning island and you've talked there about eliza and her her searching for allies her suspicion i think on at least one occasion if not several she looks at one of the members of the moonbird and and says thinks she wants to trust them in a way that she can't even trust herself so you've got us constantly off balance but Really, the epic setup, you have the crippled hero in The Blind and Fallen from Grace, Joshua Grayling, or we're meant to put our hopes on him as being the hero, pitted against the larger-than-life villainy of Fig. And their stories are revealed in the tellings of their past. I mean, the figure of Fig is... Is mythic. He he exists sort of almost outside the story. Although we do, do know them both from preservation, I'm intrigued by both of them, but particularly in that hidden and shadowy figure of the villain. Do you feel sort of, a, especially from a narrative perspective, that the villainy works best off stage in a way that allows the threat to grow in the minds of the other characters?
1: Well, I, I, yeah, I think that was very much the idea, Andrew. And, and you're right on the money there. What I think it does is that people with their ordinary fallibilities are able to project their fears onto something that's off stage. So for all of us as Australians, if you go back 10 years, we projected a lot of our insecurities as a nation onto terrorists as a vague and amorphous concept. We projected our insecurities onto asylum seekers and... Um, And in this very specific instance, you're looking at people, to take um, Joshua Grayling, he's blind and he's an alcoholic, and his best days are behind him, and he thinks, and his daughter thinks, that he's really on a decline um, to the end of his life, but there's this mythic villain out there, and he has one last shot at finding and stopping this man, and... It means that he can push aside everything else that's gone wrong and somehow redeem himself by attacking this other thing. And Eliza can see that. And she keeps reminding him, how about we deal with the practical here? You want to make a boat journey and take on a very, very capable adversary. And you can't see, and you're an addict. How is this all going to work? But it's equally true of her that she um, has had a very, very regulated, um, cloistered life in Sydney as a governess to a rich family. And she's she has a romantic idea of the sea and the islands, and she thinks that could be the other her, that could be this entire other existence. And it's no clearer that that's very realistic either. Um, The same is true of, of each of the people on the boat, that they're trying to project themselves towards something else that they can't quite define, but at least it stops them obsessing about the miserable present. Um, and I think that idea works in lots of larger and smaller ways,
0: so do they find the villain? Well, I am going to leave it up to everyone to go and read the Burning <laughs> Island, but we're, we're not telling anyone Jock I am speaking <laughs> please please I'm speaking with Jock Sarong. his latest novel is The Burning Island, and it is. An incredible historical novel, it is an incredible adventure romp, it is a sea journey, it is so many things. Jock, thank you so much for coming on the show and and sharing these insights.
1: Oh, Andrew, it's a great pleasure. It's really nice to talk to you.
0: That's it for this Great Conversation with Jock Sorong. Jock's new novel is The Burning Island and it's out now through text publishing. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two S.E.R.'s Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing, and literary culture, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. If you subscribe to your podcast app, there will be a new Great Conversation for you every week. My name is Andrew Popel. I'm going to be back next week with more Great Conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading.